one of the primary things in our life, blessings in our life that we can be thankful for is our calling. And our calling is, is so special. It is so unique in all the world and all of humanity who's ever lived. We have an incredible, wonderful calling. A part to, uh, the opportunity to be a part of this work, to be used as instruments in God's hand, to be a part of his coming millennium, to reign with Jesus Christ, to help fix this world. It is a wonderful blessing. You know, there are over 40,000 Christian denominations and organizations worldwide with approximately two and a half billion people who claim Christianity. And as large as that number is, it is still a minority of the global population. The reality is, is that there are a relatively small number of people who have ever been called both today and throughout history. And they make up what Jesus Christ called the little flock. The uniqueness of our calling to the truth and God's way of life is truly amazing and a wonderful blessing. Mr. Ames mentioned it in his LCN article, in Everything Give Thanks, a recent LCN article that uh, he wrote. Have you ever wondered why God has called you and why he hasn't called the majority of the world at this time? And Paul actually addresses this in a couple of different places that we'll look at later in the sermon. In this sermon, we'll review one primary reason God is not calling the majority of the world at this time and what that means for us. Why he's not calling the majority of the world at this time and what it means for us. And the title of the sermon is Thankfulness for Our Calling. Thankfulness for Our Calling. Let's turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, and we'll start in verse 1. So here we have Jesus Christ. We've, we've seen this before. We've read it before. Again, nothing that we'll look at today is, is new at all. But here we see Jesus Christ talking to the multitudes. And it says multitudes. Matthew 13, verse 1. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat down by the sea. And great multitudes were gathered together to him. So he got in a boat and sat in it while the whole crowd stood on the sea. And we'll skip over. Uh, for me, it's just one page in my Bible. We'll go to Matthew 14. You keep your place in Matthew 13. But we're going to go to Matthew 14 just for context here. Here, Jesus Christ talking to the multitudes. Well, how many makes up a multitude? In, in this case, here's a simple example. Matthew 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard it, he departed. There went into a boat desert, to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And Jesus went out and saw a great multitude. We'll jump down to verse 21. How many in this multitude? 
Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So there could have been eight, ten more thousand people here. What a perfect opportunity for Jesus Christ if everyone were being called now, which is what so many churches teach, that now is the time of salvation. What a perfect time for him to talk in such a plain way that they could all understand. Yet we'll, con- we'll continue in Matthew 13. Go back to Matthew 13. He talks to them and he gives them the parable of the sower. How ironic that right in the middle of the parable of the sower, the one about you know throwing out the seeds and some lands on the stony ground, that not all are going to get it. He says, verse 9, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you can hear this, if you can understand this, pay attention. Act on what you learn. Verse 10, And the disciples later came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? Here is the multitude. And here comes a few handful of his disciples. So why do you speak to them in parables? You know, parables or these analogies can be very helpful. But they're really most helpful when there's context provided to that analogy. If there's no context provided in the analogy, it just sounds like the story you're telling. And dots aren't connected. Why why are you talking this way? Verse 11... And he answered and said to them, because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. It's not time for them to understand. And he didn't say that here, but but we understand that now. It's not time. Verse 12. For whoever has to him, more will be given and uh, he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, speaking of the truth, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, verse 13, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not uh, hear, nor do they understand. They can have this right in front of them, but they cannot see it. They cannot understand it. They cannot hear it. Verse 14. Quoting from Isaiah, he says, and in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and you shall not understand seeing you will see and not perceive. In the pulpit commentary, which is it's an okay commentary in in some ways. I appreciated the way that it, it, it put this in regards to verse 14. It says, you may gaze at the object, but you shall not really see it. You know, I see Mr. Lyons down here. Well, the other day we have these WebEx meetings. And, uh, you know, you, you can see everybody on the screen. And it was, it was Mr. Lyons' turn to go in our, in our meeting. We go around. It was Mr. Lyons' turn. I looked for him on the screen. I didn't see him. So I go right after Mr. Lyons. So I said, oh, well, I guess Mr. Lyons is not here. And then as soon as I said that, I did see Mr. Lyons. 
I said, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I just totally missed him. You can see, it, it, it's actually going into the eyes, but it's not really being seen. It says, you may gaze at the object, but you shall not really see it. So with the bodily eye, an image may be formed in the retina, yet no impression conveyed to the brain. Same with these parables. He could speak to them, but they could not see it. They could not understand it. And when, when truth was in front of them, they couldn't hear it. We'll continue in verse 15. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing. Their eyes, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn. We understand not their time yet. So that I should heal them. Or forgive them of their sins. Verse 16. But blessed are your eyes for they see. And us being in this room. Having been called out of the world. We can see and understand. And blessed are your ears for they hear. For assuredly I say to you. Christ says I'm telling you. Many prophets and righteous men. Or another uh, one of the other gospels says. And many kings. Have desired to see what you see. They wished they could see it. I remember when God, I was first responding to God's calling and I was telling someone about all oh, the wonderful truth I was learning, right? It was so great. And anybody can see it because it's right here. And the person told me, you know, he, he, this person wanted to be excited for me, but said, I just can't see it the way you see it. I just can't see what you see. Many have wanted to see it and did not see it, verse 17, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Let's turn to Luke 10. We understand God is not calling everyone now. Luke chapter 10. And Jesus gives some insight in Luke 10 here. So Luke chapter 10 He had just sent the 70 out to preach the gospel, to heal the sick, to cast out demons. Verse 17, they come back, they're excited. They said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he tells tells them, yes, yes, that's true, that's true. But don't glory in that. He said, nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Verse 21, explaining a bit why he's not calling everyone now. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the spirit. He was, he was glad, he was excited that they had come back, that, that the gospel message was going out that they had been doing the works in his name and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have made these 
things, I'm sorry, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent. So this is a little insight. You have hidden these things from the wise and prudent, the special of the world, and revealed them to babes. Babes, really, those who could be taught. Those who would accept what he said and listen and act. Even so, Father, for it so, uh, for so it seemed good in your sight. I'll read again from the pulpit commentary regarding verse 21. It says, looking upon his servants after their return from their successful mission, a group made up uh, certainly for the most part of poor, untutored men. Not like the Pharisees and the highly educated, but poor, untutored men, fishers, artisans and the like. Children of the people, without rank or position. Jesus thanks the Father that in the persons of the men chosen to be the instruments of his work, he has looked away from all the ordinary machinery of human influence. It wasn't because of their goodness, because of their their specialness as individuals that he called them. As he gazes upon the band of successful Missionaries, uh, Jesus thanks the Father that henceforth his servants, if they would be successful, must owe the powers which gave them success entirely to his training and not to the world's. So not because of their specialness, but because of what Christ was doing through them and with them. We understand that Israel is a type of the world, and it also it mentions that in the uh, booklet, Is This the Only Day of Salvation? Let's actually turn to Romans 11, where Paul addresses this point. Romans 11. The booklet points out, God uses Israel as a type of all humanity. I'll read a uh, short quote from the book. So why do the Jewish people and the vast majority of those descended from the lost ten tribes not all converted? Why are they not all converted Christians? Because as with the rest of humanity, God has absolutely blinded them so they cannot understand. Let's go to Romans 11, and we'll start in verse 1. Romans 11 and verse 1. I say then, has God cast away his people? Has God thrown them out? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away, uh, God has not cast away his people, whom he foreknew, or do you not know that the scripture says of Elijah? He's talking about when when Elijah thought he was the only one. God says, no, no, there's there's many more. Let's go to verse six. 
Verse 5. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. That word grace meaning a free gift. And if by grace, then it is no longer works. So the election, the calling that we have is not about our works. We, we understand this. It is about a gift from God, a free gift from God. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, then it is no longer grace. Otherwise, works, uh, work is no longer work. Verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. Israel sought for this, but hasn't obtained it. But the elect, those called of God, have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Verse 8, similar to what we read in the Gospels. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear even to this very day. God has allowed Satan, the devil, to deceive mankind. He's allowed for that to happen. Verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Fall for good? Certainly not. But through their fall, their trespass, their sin, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. God opened it up to the Gentiles. That calling, in, for one reason at least, to provoke Israel to jealousy. Verse 12. Now if their fall is riches for the world... And their failure, riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? When it is their time, how much more? Let's go to verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off, talking about the grafting in of the, the branch, the wild branch into the cultivated tree, us being the wild branch or the Gentiles being the wild branch, and Israel being the cultivated tree, Verse 17, and if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So the roots in the trunk are supporting us as the branches, the wild branches that have been grafted in. Do not boast against the branches. He's saying we have nothing to boast about, nothing to be proud of in terms of uh, us and what we've done in in this calling. But you, if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. Mr. Ames addressed some of this in his article about Thanksgiving that we'll actually read a little quote from later. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Paul is telling them. 
Therefore, verse 22, consider the goodness and severity of God. Of those who fell or trespassed, uh, transgressed, severity. But toward you, goodness or mercy. If you continue in his goodness, if you continue in his goodness, otherwise you will also be cut off. Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, if they turn, if they repent, will be granted, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into the cultivated olive tree, how much more will these... The world when it is time, or Israel when it is time, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to the rest or to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. So there will be a future time. But he's saying, I want you to understand this, brethren. Paul is telling us that we not be wise in our own eyes regarding our calling. Verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, can't be taken back. For as you were once, and listen to this, this is, to me, this is incredible. For you were once disobedient to God. We came out of disobedience. We had to change and repent when our minds were opened. If we've grown up in the church, we need to repent of of who we are, our nature. For you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience. We've obtained mercy. Even so, these also have now been disobedient. That through mercy shown to you, the same mercy that was shown to us from our disobedience, God may also, they may also obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience. Why? That he might have mercy on all. This calling we have is only through his mercy. And it will be known to all who are called that it is by his mercy and his grace that we're called. And he continues, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How great it is that that is his plan, basically, is what Paul's saying. What a perfect and incredible plan that those who are called both now and in the future will know that it is through God's mercy and his grace and not by anything that any of us could ever do or have done. Let's go to Jeremiah 9 in this same light here. Jeremiah 9 and verse 23. 
Nehemiah 9, verse 23. Okay. Same idea here. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man, similar to what Jesus Christ said, similar to what Paul was saying, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. None of these are things to glory in, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the eternal, exercising, loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. That's what God wants us to delight in. We're going to go to Isaiah 6. This is actually uh, one of the sections Jesus Christ was quoting from when he was explaining why he spoke in parables. We're going to Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, understanding this, understanding why the whole world is not being called now, helps us understand why the things that are going to happen as a part of prophecy must happen. Isaiah 6 and verse 9. And he said, go. Tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Verse 11 through 13 here gives some insight about why the things that are going to happen to this world, including the great tribulation and the day of the Lord, so that he can ultimately work with mankind. Why that has to happen. Verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming. Whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. They must be humbled before God called us, us. God humbled us to begin working with us, to begin opening our minds. And in order for the world to understand, that has to happen. Let's go to Isaiah 10. Isaiah chapter 10. Again, the idea is similar here. That there can't be any boasting in ourselves, in anything special about us, about our calling. Isaiah 10, and we'll just kind of uh, talk about at least the first part here. God uses Assyria to punish Israel. 
And he says in verse 5, Woe to Assyria, Assyria, the rod of my anger, and the staff in whose hand is my indignation. I will send him against an ungodly nation and against the people of my wrath. That is Israel. He's going to punish Israel, he's saying, with Assyria. I will give him charge to seize the spoil and to take the prey and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. And again, let's think about the context. Let's remember the context of the sermon here about why God is not calling the whole world and that there is no boasting in ourselves for our calling and the world will never be able to boast in itself when it is time for it to be called. Therefore, verse 12, it shall come to pass when the Lord has performed all his work, he's used Assyria to bring down, it says, his work on Mount Zion and Jerusalem, that he will say, Assyria will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant, I'm sorry, God will say, I will punish the fruit of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his haughty looks. What haughty looks? For the king of Assyria says, verse 13, by the strength of my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent. For I also have removed the boundaries of the people and have robbed their treasuries So I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. Yes, I have done it. My hand has found like a nest the riches of the people. And the one, and one, as one gathers eggs that are left, I have gathered all the earth. And there was no one who moved his wing against me, nor opened his mouth, not even with a peep, says the king of Assyria. And God says, I'm going to have to punish that. Attitude, that haughty attitude. He says in verse 15, Shall the axe boast against him who chops with it? The axe boasting, saying, Yes, I am the one who've cut down the, tr- who's cut down the tree. Not you, the one holding me, using me as an instrument in your hand. God says, I'm not going to have that. The axe will not boast against the one who swings it. Or shall the saw, verse 15, continuing, exalt itself against him who saws with it? I'm not going to have that, God says. As if a rod could wield itself against those who lift it up? Or as if a, uh, or as if a staff could lift it up? As if it were not wood? It's nothing but wood. The wood and the instrument is not going to boast against me. It's not going to take the credit, God says. And it continues and says, therefore, the Lord, the Lord of hosts will send leanness among the fat ones. He will humble Assyria in that case. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1. And this passage may have already come to mind. You know, why, why has God chosen who he has and called who he has and not called who he has? Verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 1. 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. I will make sure before me, God says, that they will be brought down. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, verse 21, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews it's a stumbling block, and to the Greeks it's foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Verse 26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Because there will be no boasting in anything that we've done for this special and wonderful calling. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world. That certainly ought to be humbling to know. (laughs) To put to shame, why has he done it? Why has he called who he's called? Why has he not called who he has not called? He's chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. That no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him... You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And we understand that we can only come to Jesus Christ through God the Father calling us. We understand that. While the world is not being called at this time, we understand through the last great day and many scriptures that ultimately God wants all to be saved, wants all to come to repentance. But it will be at the right time. Let's go to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9. Understanding that our calling is through the grace of God. It is a gift, free gift from God that he has given to us. Second Timothy and chapter 1 and verse 9 here.
says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which is given which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Again, clarity that God has not called us because of our works, but because of his grace and his mercy. I'll read from the article Mr. Ames wrote in Everything Give Thanks. It's from the November-December 2021 LCN. He writes, We should be thankful... For our calling always. But if we let ourselves think that because of our calling we are better than others around us, we are just like that Pharisee, the Pharisee he referenced in Luke 18. It says, you know, thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people over here. We have received, Mr. Ames continues, the indescribably wonderful gift of our calling, which should fill us with humility and thankfulness not with pride, self-righteousness, and a false sense of superiority. Let's turn to Second Peter 1 and verse 2 in closing. You know, this calling is something that we can be deeply thankful for. This calling is something we should never take for granted, but really put our whole lives and being into it. You know, understanding we have this calling and we have the, the parable of the minas and the talents, and it talks, you know, it mentions about those who, who have invested and done their part in their spiritual life. We'll be rewarded for that. We will be rewarded for that. And if we hide those things away, if we don't take full advantage of what God has put in front of us, then it says even what we have will be taken away. Verse, uh, we're in Second uh, Peter 1 and verse 2. Grace be multiplied to you. And in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. What a wonderful blessing we can have God's Holy Spirit living and working in us. Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Verse 5, For but also... For this very reason, giving all diligence to add to your faith, virtue, virtue, knowledge, to add to uh, knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness. This is what we need to do in response to our to this calling to godliness, brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful. We can be fruitful with the help of God's spirit in response to this calling. You will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. But verse 10, therefore, brethren, 
Be even more diligent to make your calling, your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Putting our whole heart, our whole being in humility before God, knowing that he has given us this wonderful gift. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've reviewed in this sermon one primary reason why God is not calling everyone now. And that is because he is making sure it is known that it is not by our wisdom or anyone who will be called. It is not by wisdom or prudence or riches or by any special place in society. It's not by birthright. It's not by works or any special trait but that it is by his mercy and his grace and that any glorying about our calling is not in us, but in God. We can be reminded that our calling is a free gift that we can never earn. This calling we have is unique and very special and something to be thankful for for all eternity.